Thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and to fellowship. And we ask you to guide us and lead us as we go through the word that you're given us so that we can know what you want us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Matthew chapter 23, starting at verse 29. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our father, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, you be witnesses unto yourself that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill you up the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you, you generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you have... You shall kill and crucify, and some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them in, in the, from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel and to the blood of Zacharias, son of Abachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kills the prophets and stones them which are sent to you, how often would I have gathered you, your children together, even as a hen gathers the chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth till you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. All right. This is the continuation of the, the woes against the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, there's actually seven of them in this chapter. So uh, he goes on, he starts here on verse 28, uh, verse 29. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous. You say, if we had been in the days of our father, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Jerusalem had a habit of killing God's prophets. Uh, many of them have had suffered. Uh, Isaiah was sawn in half. Elijah and Elisha were prophets in is to the northern northern uh, Israel. Uh, Jeremiah, every time he spoke, he got thrown into prison or dungeons or cisterns. I mean, every time he, you know, which is why at one point he told God, "I'm not going to speak anymore because every time I speak." Something bad happens to me, and that's when it follows up with that. Your, your, your word burned in my mouth, and I couldn't help but speak. So we see this whole idea of Jerusalem having the reputation of killing the prophets, and yet the prophets would be revered. And that's basically what Jesus is saying. You scribes and Pharisees, you, you're revering the prophets. You're building them ornate tombs and monuments. Uh, you're decorating their, 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 their sepulchers, their tombs, and you say, you know, if we had been alive, we wouldn't have killed these guys. And Jesus is saying, you would have done just what your fathers did. And we see this over and over, that they keep getting Isaiah killed by, killed by the, the Jewish people of his day, and yet he's one of the famous prophets of their day. Uh, we see uh, Samuel that was very much, you know, loved by the people, but at the same time had people against him. We see all these prophets that, that had people against them because they spoke God's word. And people who speak God's word are usually not popular in their generation with the people they speak, speak against. 
Now they may, after they die, it's pretty amazing. The Catholic Church was really good about this. Every time some, some priest would break away and start preaching the gospel of Christ and draw people away, that person would die and then they would make that person a saint and bring their people back into the church. Uh, and this, they've done that many times. St. Patrick you know, was a Christian and broke away from the Catholic Church and they drew him back. Uh, uh, St. Augustine was the same thing. He was a Catholic uh, priest who broke away and started preaching the gospel and then they brought him back and made him a saint and drew all of his people back. Uh, and the Jews did the same thing. The prophet would speak for God, they'd, they would persecute him, kill him, and then realize that they had done something bad and decide to make him this great leader and, and revere, their, revere them and say, you know, each generation will look back and say, well, we would have never killed this guy. Look at all these good things he said about God, you know, t- taught us about God. We would have never killed them. And yet Jesus is saying, you know, you scribes and Pharisees, you're saying you wouldn't have wouldn't killed them, but you'd do the same exact thing. Uh, and, you know, he's, he's going to be telling them this. He goes, um, verse 31, he says, Therefore be witnesses unto yourself that you are the children of them which killed your prophets. Fill you up the full measure of your fathers. And this fill is in what way, basically. He says, you know, you're going to make full because you, they did it, you're going to do it. And we see this, and it's very interesting. Even we as Christians sometimes, we get saved and we start forgetting. The longer we walk with God, oftentimes we forget about how bad we were before we got saved and what drove us into salvation. And we kind of start judging other people and forgetting about what it was that made us change the way we think. Uh, I heard a pastor the other day. He was talking about how he was talking to a new Christian who was swearing about every fifth word. And, you know, he, he was trying to withdraw from the guy. And God, kind of, he says he remembered God saying, well, this was you when you first got saved. You know, you were the same way. You know, and we do tend to do that. We kind of forget. We start surrounding ourselves in God's way. And then we grow. And we start to hate the things we used to do. And oftentimes, we'll then transfer that hatred onto other people that need God's love. And we need to be very careful about that. Huh? People can tend to run things wrong. Yeah. Even, even without being saved, that can happen. Uh, because you want to say, well, I'm better than everybody else, or I've increased, you know, I've, I've made my life better. I've gotten these things out of my life. And it's a good thing to get them out of our life, but we cannot at the same time forget where we came from because everybody needs to grow. And that's what I keep telling everybody. We need to be very careful. People need to grow at the rate that they're going to grow. And some people change drastically overnight when they get saved. Other people take a long time to get, to get that growth in them. Some of it depends on how well they get into the Bible and how well they're taught. Other people just never grow, no matter who they're with and no matter how they're going to get taught. They just don't seem to grow. Hmm? It's all growth. That's why I liken it to the idea of a child. When, you're, when your child first starts walking you don't, and, and falls down every time they stand up, you don't go, you stupid kid, why aren't you running yet? You know, the kid's gone, you know, the kid's only a year and a half old, you know, and it's like, you know, and you praise him just for standing up. You praise him for taking two steps. So what do we oftentimes as Christians do to ourselves and others? Well, you've been saved for a whole three, three days. How come you aren't running and being super spiritual and, and praying and everything? We might not be quite that blunt, but we say it in the way we treat them. 
you know, what do you mean you're still cussing all the time, you know, every fifth word, you know, you, you're saved, you should have a whole new language now. You still have a desire to drink and do drugs, you know, come on, you're supposed to, you've got the Holy Spirit into you, you're supposed to be totally changed, you know. And we tend to do this to one another and we need to be very careful because we are in a growth cycle. And the one thing I am finding after even 46 years of walking with God, there's a lot of things out of my life, there's still a lot of things left to go. And somebody could be looking at me and saying, well, Pastor, how come you haven't gotten that out of your life yet? Well, I've gotten all this other stuff out of my life. You know, it's just this thing hasn't come up yet. <laughs> you know, and we've got to be careful because a lot of times, whatever we get out of our life, we kind of expect everybody else to have the same growth pattern. And God has an individualized plan for each one of us. And if we just can learn to let people grow at the rate God wants them to rate, grow, we'll be better off. And they'll be better off. Because a lot of people get driven from churches because people are judging them by, you know, well, God took this out of my life by the time I had been, you know, Christian for two months. How come you're still having a problem with it? And they could be also saying the same thing to you, you know, well, God took something out of their life. Do you still have a problem with? So we want to be very careful about this. And the, these guys were saying, you know, if, if we'd have been there, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. Pretty easy to say when there doesn't, when from what we know, there's no prophet that has written a book of the Bible for 400 years up to this point. Malachi was the last prophet that had a book written of prophetic book utterance, and then you have Jesus being born 400 years later. Now, I heard a pastor say, well, there was no move of God, no, no prophets during that period of time. I disagree with him. God's always got a remnant. There's always people that would be teaching God's word. Now, I, I would be very careful to say there was nobody that wrote anything, nobody that did a major move of God, but God always has a remnant. There's always people that will bring up his word. Even in the seven-year tribulation pe period, there's people that are preaching the gospel of God during the time and the worst time that you've ever existed or ever will exist on earth uh, on persecution. There's still witnesses for God. So this 400 silent years, had there was something going on for God. It just wasn't big enough to be a revival or or have anything written. But he says, you know, take care of yourselves because you would have done the same thing, scribes and Pharisees. If you, if you had the opportunity to have a, a prophet speaking against you, you would, you'd be crucifying them. And then, in, and how do we know that they would do that? Well, let's see, we've had John the Baptist get, already been killed. We are gonna see Jesus being killed and then we're gonna see the disciples be persecuted and Christians being killed. So he says, you know, you, you guys would be just like your just like your family because you are the children of those who killed the prophets. And he wasn't just meaning physical children, he meant in attitude and actions. And we see this over and over in families even, you, we see it. People, the children act very much like their parents and their grandparents and if you're from a family of, of drunken people, then you tend to be drunken in yourself, and you usually go deeper than your, than your, your, your parents did. Uh, and it can also work the other way for spiritual side of things. If you're a Christian and you're leading your, your family in Christian walk, you can see your children go deeper into the Christian walk than you do. It uh, doesn't always happen, but it can. And the same thing with the negative side. It doesn't always happen that your children become drunks and abusers and, and everything from their behavior. Some of them look and say, I'll never do that and actually never do it. 
most people who say I'll never do it end up doing it. Problem. It's very few people that say I won't do it and don't do it. I looked at my dad being an alcoholic and I said I'm not going to drink because I knew I had a compulsive behavior and if I had started drinking I would have been a drunk. Uh, if I had started drinking, uh, smoking cigarettes like my dad did, I would have been just like him, you know, with the cigarette in my hand all the time because of my personality. So for me, I just knew I couldn't start any of that stuff because I knew enough about myself to know that I couldn't. Stuff with pastor's kids falls into that. Pastor's kids usually have their problems more from the fact that people expect more from their kids than they should. They expect because they're a pastor's kid they're going to be good and then when you start hammering them because they're not as good as you expected them to be, they rebel even further. And then they have a father who's usually so busy serving the church that he's not taking care of his family. So you have a lot of that that goes on. But a lot of it is when a church gets a pastor, they, they think that the entire family is being hired to be a pastor, basically. The, the wife is to do some, you know, is to be the greatest example of, of what a woman is supposed to do and is supposed to be a great uh, entertainer and and be able to put up with all the problems and negativity of everybody. And their kids are supposed to be the perfect kids to be an example to every other kid that's being a kid when the pastor's kids are just kids. But it, it is what happens out there. There's a high expectation put on a, on a pastor alone, but that person's kind of, they pick their job, you know, usually God has called them and they pick their job and, and they're realizing that there is this high expectation that they have to live up to. But the wife and the, you know, the wife, may or may not have you know, picked it. And, but the kids, they didn't pick it. There's, the kids no way pick, picked being the pastor's kids. And when people won't let them be kids, then they rebel. And then, of course, the pastor is usually too busy with the church. What I was saying is that maybe that wasn't, that wasn't where he was supposed to be and all this stuff happened. I don't, I don't try to second guess people's lives because it, I have enough trouble second guessing my own life, which I don't want to do. I don't want to second guess my own life either. So it's, well, there's always going to be things that happen when you're outside of God's will because he wants to bring you back into his will. We want to be very careful that we don't second guess our own life nor other people's lives because, number one, everything that has happened to me in my lifetime has prepared me for where I am now. And people go, would you go back and change anything? And, you know, I thought about that a couple of times. And in reality, while there are some things that hurt when they happened, I don't know that I would change them because if I changed them, I wouldn't be who I am today. The things that seem bad, seem to have been painful, are what build you into, build your character and draw you close to God. And listening to one of the pastors this week, he was talking about when they first built the biosphere down in Tucson, they kept all the storms out of, out of it, and the trees would grow, and they got to a certain place, and then they fell, fell flat. And they couldn't figure it out, and they brought a botanist in, and he goes, well, the problem is there's no storm. There's no winds blowing the trees, making them have to strengthen themselves. And he goes, so they get up, and they're, and they're totally unstrong, and when they get to a certain size, they just collapse under their own weight. And the point of that is, and the same thing has been said many times, our storms in our life, the problems in our life, really do make us stronger. Not that we enjoy them when they're happening, not that we enjoy the pain and the suffering when it happens, but without it, 
we would be spiritual weaklings that couldn't handle anything that comes our way. So we look at this and we say, well, we have a problem. Now the question is, is the problem caused by something that I did, which still doesn't mean anything other than I'm going to get stronger in the long run, or is it a test from God to, to test me and strengthen me? Either way, I'm going to get stronger. And we, this is one of the reasons you hear me so often say, when things look bad in your life or seem bad to you, I'm not going to say anything in my life has been bad because everything that has happened to me has been for my growth and my development. Now, would I have, would I have by choice shortcutted some of them? Of course I would have shortcutted some of them not knowing what it did in the future because they were not fun going through those painful times. So the growth and development, even if it's something Even if you cause it, you're going to still grow from it. I try to look at my life and say, what have I learned from everything I've gone through? Make corrections in the future if you don't look at your life and say, okay, what did I learn from this? Or what could I have done better to avoid it? It is what they're looking at. But I'm going to look at how did I grow from this? And there's things that I've gone through that First time I went through them, they were a pain in the neck. They were hard. The second time I went through something similar, it was a lot easier. By the time I got to the third or fourth, it's like, what problem? It's not even, a, not, not even an issue. If you've learned from it and you've grown from it, then it was well, well worth the effort of, of what you went through. Uh, my example of going down to Tucson and having our car break down, and everybody's worried about how we're going to get home except for me. Why? Because I've been through this so many times, my car breaking down someplace or something happening to me and saying, okay, God, you've always taken care of me in the past, so you've got three days to take care of me before I have to worry about how I'm getting home, God, and I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not saying I've done it right every time and even since then every time, but that particular time, I did it right. Everybody's going, well, how are you going to get your car home? How are you going to get your car I go, I don't know. I go, God's got three days to figure that out. I'm here to enjoy this, this activity. But you take on that mindset, it's a hard place to get it. Well, part of it is by going through hard things, God has always taken care of me, and I'm getting better now at saying God's going to take care of me. God's always taken care of me. If I freaked out, God's still going to take care of me. But the most important thing is what are we learning from the hard times that we're going through? Because we're guaranteed we're going to go through hard times. Are we learning to trust in God? And to me, I have learned that God is in control, he's sovereign, and he's going to work all things together for good, and he's always going to give me what I need. It may not be what I think I need, and I may not appreciate it, appreciate it at the time that it's happening, but he's always going to give me what I need, and he's going to make things work out for good. And I've learned that fairly well, so that in, it's only taken me 40-some years to do it, but... Now that I'm at this point, it's so much fun. It's so, it's so easy to live life now because I'm going, okay, God, I don't know how you're going to do this, but you're going you're gonna to work things out. It brings a lot of peace when you get to that point. And I'm not perfect at it, but most of the time I just say, okay, God, let's, how are you going to work this one out? We see this over and over. How dependent are we to let God do his part? Too many times we sit there and try to figure out, God, how, am I gonna, how can I fix this? Fought God for six years one time trying to fix the problems. Amazing when I finally gave up how quick the problems disappeared. And God took care of them. And I fought for six years trying to fix the problems. That was one of the reasons I've learned finally, okay, God, I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you do these things. And again, it doesn't mean that we don't do anything, that we don't try to do anything. It just means we 
relent to him and say, okay, God, I'm going to listen, I'm going to follow, and watch how you're going to work in my life. I'm not going to panic. Because panic is going to lead you to make dumb decisions oftentimes. When you get all scared and freaked out about how, how is this going to happen, and then the next thing you know, you've uh, taken a job that is not the right job, you've uh, moved, moved to another place to, run out, to try to run away from your problems, and the problems still are there, the issues are still there. Yeah. And sometimes taking that job is the right thing to do, but it's just a matter of listening to God and saying, God, what, what am I to do? When I got the job at the prison, it was kind of thrown in my lap. You know, it wasn't where I was looking. I didn't want it. And God kept putting it back in there and saying, it, it's, <laughs> this is your job. Apply for it. <laughs> and, you know, we just learned to relax and let God take care of this. Verse 33, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send, I send you unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you have killed and crucified, and some of them you have scourged in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Now, I think he's talking prophetically here for the most part. But I think he is pointing out, you know, it was Herod that killed John the Baptist, but he's still one of the leaders of Israel. He, uh, we were going to see the wise men, were, you know, they were tried to get, uh, Herod tried to kill them because they were abandoned them, and then he killed the children. Uh, Jesus is going to be crucified. Peter is going to be crucified. The prophets, uh, the apostles are all going to get scourged in their lifetimes. Uh, he says, you know, I'm going to give you these guys, and you're going to be persecuting them. You, the ones that are talking to me, the ones here telling us that we would not have killed the prophets, you are going to take and kill, condemn those that are going to give you God's word. So we see a prophecy here on this that is going to talk about how you guys think you're so special, but when you get, when you get the people of God speaking to you, you're going to act just like your fathers did. You're going to be just like them. And we see this over and over. When God's word is spoken, people react. And it's not just the Jews that react to it. When uh, Thomas goes to India and he ends up being run through with a lance because he speaks God's truth in India. We see all these guys that are going to lose their lives. All the, all the apostles, except for John, are going to die horrible deaths. And they're going to be beat, beaten and scourged and uh, given through all kinds of trials. So Jesus is saying, hey, you know, you're going to have your opportunity to, to prove this. You're, you're saying you never would have done what your fathers did. We'll, we'll see what you're going to do in just a few, you know, you know, actually just another week or two from this point <laughs> when they finally killed Jesus on the cross is only a, is less than a week from the point that we are in Matthew. And then Pentecost is going to be 50 days after that. And we're going to see them really starting to go after the apostles when they get power and start speaking with the power of the Holy Spirit. And they start putting them in prison, scourging them, uh, beheading beheading uh, James and, you know, in, in Jerusalem. He was the first, uh, first martyr, and he was beheaded. They're going to stone Stephen. They're going to scourge and beat the disciples. So Jesus is saying, you know, you think you're so special? You think you wouldn't have done this to the prophets? Well, it's, you're you're going to do just what they did and then more. We're going to give you some and see what you do with them. You know, 12 of them specifically, and then a whole another, another 5,000 that get converted in, on Pentecost, and we'll see what you do to these guys. So all, all 12 of them killed? No. All, 
Ten of them get killed. Judas tries to hang himself. And John, they try hard to kill, and, he, God, and God just won't let him die. They tried to poison him. They tried to boil him in oil. They put him in a criminally insane asylum, hoping that the uh, criminally insane would, would kill him. Basically, that's what they were looking for when they put him on Patmos. So we see this prophecy of what they were going to do to the apostles. Then in verse 35, it says, And upon you may that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel and to the blood of Zacharias, son of Baachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. And I don't know who Baachias is, but it definitely meant something to them. <laughs> but he says, your disobedience is going to make you guilty of all the blood of the righteous shed from, uh, from the beginning of time on. In other words, he's saying you're, you're just like your fathers. Obviously, he's somebody who prophesied and was killed in the temple or just out, just in the edge of the temple. So uh, context tells us that he was a very righteous man and probably a teacher or a prophet. And he's going all the way back to Abel being killed by his brother Cain. And Cain killed his brother. Why? simply because offered a lamb as a sacrifice. He shed blood. Cain came in and said, I'm going to do it my way. God, you wanted blood. I'm going to give you my fruit of my, fruit of my labors, the sweat of my brow, okay? My works, my human works. And so Cain goes in with his human, human works, and God says, that's not what I wanted. I want, I want something that is not your work. It's uh, the blood sacrifice. And because Cain was rejected, he took it out on his brother. Now, it's kind of an amazing thing, but we see it all the time. People get rejected someplace, and then they take it out on somebody who's, quote-unquote, innocent of the activity. And we see it frequently in our world. You know, somebody gets rejected from this other place, and then they go and kill, you know, the school children or something, the... The, the guy in Las Vegas killing people that are at a concert. Why? Just because they're there and he, he had some issue that he was trying to deal with. And we see it over and over again. And it's biblical. We've seen it, seen it from the very beginning. Cain's rejected and he takes it, and this, at least in this case, God rejects him, but he, then he takes it out on his brother. All his brother did was give the right, right sacrifice that he was told to give. God said, you know, with Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing he did, he gave them clothing of skins, which showed them that it took blood to be forgiven of their sins because he had to kill an animal. And you think about this. There weren't a lot of animals at that time because it wasn't been a long, long period. So God took some probably young animals that they had been almost pets to them to clothe them with. Endangered species. And probably and definitely endangered the species, if not totally wiped out a species. Yeah. You know, because we don't know what they were, what skins they were clothed in. They may have had to wipe out a species to to clothe them. But God set the stage for sacrifice with Adam and Eve to give them the clothing to cover their and the blood covered their sin until Jesus would be born. So they knew from the beginning, blood sacrifice. And what did Cain do? He says, I don't want to do this blood sacrifice thing. I grow, I grow fruits and vegetables. I'll just give God what I grow. I'll give him my own works. And he was rejected, just as any of us are rejected when we try to give God 
our works and say, God, here's the best I can do. And God says, so what? It's not what I wanted. An innocent life had to be given to cover the sin, which is a picture of Jesus Christ, the innocent lamb that covers the sins of the world. It's very important that when God teaches us the way we're supposed to live and the way we're supposed to behave, that we do it because we become doubly responsible because it's no longer disobedience out of lack of knowledge. If you know what you're supposed to do and you disobey, God says, no, you, you, you were bad in the first place and you're going to be punished for it. You, know, you may claim you didn't know about it and now we're going to correct that. But when you know the way you're supposed to live, know what you're supposed to do, God says, now you're without any excuse. You, know, you can't even begin to say, well, I didn't know any better. I mean, God, God doesn't release us even if we're ignorant. And that's where we come. Our country has a statement of ignorance of the law is not an excuse for when you violate the law. Because it's our job to know what we're supposed to obey. And it's usually based upon our conscience. And God has that same mentality. You know instinctively you're not supposed to do it and you went ahead and did it anyway. And then when we tap onto that, you read it in God's word that you weren't supposed to do it. Or you were taught in, by a Bible teacher that you weren't supposed to do it. Now you really have no excuse. Yeah, we still do. And yet we still do it. It just shows how really wretched we are when we in our sin nature. So we really don't consider this. We don't consider that. Most people yeah. do not realize how, how dark sin is and how wicked the heart is. Paul in, in Romans says, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will, who will deliver me from this body of sin? And we do it all the time. We tend, because the evil in our, in our if it's not crucified, wants to sin. We as human beings in our sin nature want to, desire to sin. The only thing that keeps it in check is God indwelling us and crucifying the flesh. Now, some, some people are able to discipline their flesh a little bit. But the only problem with disciplined flesh is when it does finally let go, it really lets go. Okay, you might be the most disciplined person in the world for a long period of time, and all of a sudden you just explode. Next, you see it with kids, you see it with yourself, you see it with family members, people you know, you're going, wow, that person was really disciplined. Why, why all of a sudden are they you know, going on this binge, you know, they've never drank in their life, they've never had, didn't seem to have any real problems, and now they've been, they've been drunk for seven months and, and high on drugs, and they've lost all interest in everything. Well, the flesh can only be held back so long, which is why God tells us that the flesh is to be crucified. Because if it's crucified, it doesn't have any way to strike out, and even then we have problems with it. But that's something we do, or is that something that the scripture says, I am crucified, which means somebody is crucifying me because it's a passive. I am crucified with Christ, not it's me. Not did, it's not, if it was something I did, it would be I crucified my flesh, but I am crucified is somebody doing it to me, That's which is God, you, which is God. How do you get to that? You have to let him do it. It's amazing as how many things we don't really well, if we do not desire to let God do things in our life, he won't. He is, a, he is a gentleman. He is not going to say, well, you're my child. I'm going to make you do what I want you to do. 
Now, he will discipline us. He will make things life difficult for us if we're, if we're not following him. But he is not just going to say, okay, I want your cru flesh crucified, lay down, you know, you know I'm going to sedate you and crucify your flesh. He goes, if we don't want it to happen, he stands back and says, okay, when you're ready, you're going to be, you're going to allow it to happen. Hard to teach a Christian that doesn't want to know God's word. You know, they come in, all, all I want to do is come to church, sing a couple songs, and go home. I've done my time with God. Don't, don't, make, your, don't make your sermon too, too hard, Pastor, because I wanna, I just, I'm just here to make my brownie points with God. I came to church. You know, and there are lots of churches out there that do just that. Come in, sing a couple songs, uh, give a little you know, feel-good message that doesn't challenge them to live. But a lot of churches are like that. Don't come. Don't hear anything of challenge. Don't challenge anybody to, to live a godly life. And people want, to, want it that way. Well, my job is not that. My job is to come in and preach God's word and, and challenge people to live according to the way he wants. And that's where my job ends. I'm not sitting there babysitting everybody and saying, okay, this is what you do. Now, if people come and say, how can I do this? I can give direction. I can use examples. I can talk to them about where they're at in their life. But it all comes down to, are we willing to let God change us? The more we're willing to let him change us, the more he's going to come in and do the changing because that's what he wants to do. He wants us to grow, he wants us to change. How, do we, how did we teach our children to walk? We didn't just kind of sit there and say, okay kid, when you're, when you're ready, you'll get up and walk. You know, we kind of stand them up, bounce them up and down a little bit, we, get them, we help them stand, and eventually they get the idea that they're supposed to stand. You know, I, can, I can't imagine, I don't know if a kid would ever learn to walk if the parents didn't help them stand and everything on their feet. You know, kid, just lay down on the floor, and someday when you want to go someplace, you're going to get up and walk. No, it's not, you know, not what we do. And I don't know. I don't know if it would be an experiment I would ever want to hear about. You know, let's leave this kid laying on the ground until he decides to walk. How long would it take? Well, verse 36, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. So he says, you know, you're going to have your opportunity to prove that you're going to get these, you're going to get these people in your generation. Because he's talking to people that are 30, 40 years old. The temple is going to be destroyed in 70 AD, about 30, 38 years from the moment Jesus is talking about. So pretty much everybody he's talking to is still going to be alive when all of this stuff is going on. When, people, when these disciples are going to be killed, they're going to be killed right in the streets of Jerusalem and the rest of Israel. He says, you're going to have your chance to prove it. It's going to happen to you in this generation. And then we see in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kills the prophets and stones those that were sent unto you, how often would I have gathered you, gathered your children together, even as the hen gathers her chickens under his wing, and you would not. Jesus is saying, I loved you so much. I love you, and I, and I want to just gather you. I want to protect you. I want to make you my children and show you how to live. And yet, you're in rebellion. And we look at this all through the time of the kings and even go back to the judges. The people would be disobedient. God would punish them by putting them under captivity. A judge would come along and rescue them and deliver them. And then they would start misbehaving again after that judge died and go back into captivity and God would send a judge. All through the time of the kings, most of the kings were bad kings. In Israel, in the northern kingdom, they never had a good king. They were all wicked kings. In the, 
in the southern kingdom of Judah, they only had like four kings that were godly kings out of all their kings. And when there was a bad king, things went bad. Idol worship and droughts and famines and, and hard times with the enemy. And when there were good kings following God, great blessings came. You might even think if they just understood their history, they might have been, hey, you know what? When we, when we follow God, things go good. When we disobey God, things aren't so good. All they had to do is look at the Bible and see that. You know, when, when they disobeyed in the wilderness, they would be judged. And when they obeyed, they were blessed. And that was what Moses told them. If you don't keep the law, you will be cursed. If you keep the law, you will be blessed. And yet, over and over again, they would reject God and try to do things their way. And, you know, the sad thing is we do the same thing in our day and age, too. And we as Christians do the same thing. God, I just want to do things my way for a while. And God says, well, that's not where you get your blessing. Well, God, I just, I feel stifled by your rules and I want to, and I want to disobey, so I'm going to go do things my way. Yeah, he'll let you. And he lets us do things our way. And he goes, okay, you're the prodigal son. You've got your wealth. When, you, when you're done spending all your wealth and, and you're laying in the gutter with the pigs and you don't have anything to wear and you don't have anything to, to, to follow, you'll come back to me and I'll be waiting for you. And then he hopes that we've learned our lesson and don't do it again. And sometimes we've learned our lesson and sometimes we have not learned our lesson. And sometimes we go on and do it our way again. You know, the, the idea of uh, Frank Sinatra's song, I, I, I did it my way, is not a good way to live. <laughs> we want to do it God's way. And because he says, you know, I, want, I wanted to gather you. I wanted to protect you. And you... And you would not. You would not, which goes back to what you were asking, Billy. If I don't want to let him change me, he's not going to force me to. If I don't want to let him crucify my flesh and let my, let my life become an easier life, then he'll just stand back and let me wallow around in the mud for a while until I'm ready to let him crucify my flesh. When I am ready, I'll go, God, please get, get rid of this thing. Help, I need your help. How do, we, how do we give up something? We surrender. How do we surrender? We finally get to the place where we just get tired of fighting. You know, my picture of it, you know, if there were police outside this building yelling, you know, yelling with the bullhorns, come out with your hands up, we have a choice. We can stay in here until, until they fire tear gas or whatever in and say, well, I'm not coming out, or we go out with our hands up. Our choice, really. You know, they're not out there saying, you know, you must make, you know, we're going we're gonna to come in there and put your hands up and drag you out. No, they're going to make you come out eventually, you know, by starving you out, firing tear gas in, whatever it is that they need to do to get you to finally say, I'm done with this, I'm surrender. God does basically the same thing into our life. He says, okay, you, you don't want to surrender. Let's see how you like uh, not having my blessings. Let's see how you like having your life turned upside down and made rough. And eventually we go, God, I surrender. Please help me. I give, I give up. And then once you give up and you surrender, you kind of start kicking yourself like, why did I wait so long? It was so easy to do. And I've had many people ask me, well, how do you surrender? I go, you just do it. Well, how do you do that? You just do it. Yeah. And they go, well, I don't understand. I go, well, once you finally surrender, you will understand and you will be kicking yourself for not having done it earlier. 
Because it really comes down to just that simple. I make a decision that, God, I am tired of trying to do it my way, and I'm going to surrender. And we see it when you get there and do it, it much, it's much easier and much better. And Jesus is saying, I wanted to do this, and you wouldn't let me. Verse 38, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. This is a prophecy that, that is uh, given in the Old Testament that when Jesus returns, people will look at him and say, Who gave you these wounds? And he'll tell them, they, These came from the house of my friends. Uh, na namely, <laughs> the very people he's talking to. They're going to crucify him. They're going to put wounds in him that are going to be eternal wounds. And this is something that has always amazed me. Jesus in heaven appears as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He's the only thing that is going to be marred in heaven by human beings. And I am so glad God's going to take away all tears from our eyes because I don't know that I could look at him for all of eternity seeing the scars and the, and the, and the pain that he took for my salvation to be there. And I'm glad that he's taken away the, the tears from, from our eyes because can you imagine what that would be like? to see Jesus, nail prints and scars in his body for all of eternity, knowing we're there only because of those nails and scars that for all practical purposes, we put there. You know, if we're in heaven, we put, the, we put them there because it was our sins that were covered by those, those scars. And you know, when people talk about who killed Jesus, well, there's all kinds of ones. The Romans physically killed him. The Jewish leaders actually put him in their hands. The Father allowed it, and we were the reason that he went to the cross because of our sin. So the entire world is culpable for, this, for the death of Jesus because if it wasn't for the sin, then we would not have, he would not have had to have died in the first place. And then, so we are the reason that he died. The reason that he was born, the reason that he came to this world, the reason that he died is because of us and our sin. Let's close in prayer. And Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we had to come together and ask you just to guide us, help us to see our sinfulness and turn to you in repentance and forgiveness and help us learn to just surrender to you in a greater and deeper way than we do currently. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.